morning. Good? Yeah. I'm Emily Lavender. I know a whole lot of you. Um, my husband Tim and I have been going here for about 17 years, and we have three kids, Ty, Thomas, and Mary. Um, it is a real honor to get to share with you this morning, um, and I just pray that um, it's just God's words and nothing else. Um, I'm going to be sharing a little bit of my testimony and a little bit um, about how God has worked in my life. Um, when I was a little girl, believing all the world had to offer was light and life, I lost my dad to some really unfortunate circumstances. Um, at the same time, I lost my ability to trust freely and gained a shirt of shame that I would wear for a really long time. Um, I also simultaneously put on a coat of perfectionism. And as a good Christian girl, I know exactly um, how I needed to look, and I was a keen actress. The day after my world was forever disrupted, um, I sat in church with my mom and my brother and my grandmother and my great-grandparents, and I sat with a burning hot lump in my throat and an occasional tear slipping down my face. Um, I had entered a dark night in my soul. We told no one of the happenings of the night before, um, though inevitably the entire community would soon be aware. We smiled when people asked us how we were doing, even though my insides felt like the spin cycle of an oversized laundry load, you know, the one that makes your whole machine like shake. Yeah, that kind. That afternoon, I played courage in a play, appropriate. That night, I cried myself to sleep. My dad had not died. Um, he'd been arrested. My preaching at small local churches, principal of the elementary school, pedophile dad. I was young, and I'm sure I didn't process everything exactly um, as it was, but here's what I can tell you. Our house, the one where there had been pool parties and celebrations and family gatherings and church fellowships, the table that had been full of laughter and joy fell silent. In the course of a few days, which is approximately how long it takes before the days of Twitter and Instagram in a small town for people to find out what's happened, um, in those few days, our world went silent. No one knew what to do with us. Uh, my mom, brother, and I became untouchables, the outcasts, the unclean. We were not invited to anybody's house to mourn or grieve or process. We weren't having dinner with close friends. All went silent. And the table remained unset, and we sat alone in one of the most difficult seasons we'd ever faced. Some of you have done this, and I'm so sorry. If someone has a baby or gets sick or has a death 
or a wedding, we know what to do. The meal train goes out immediately. We know how to step in action. We can send cards. We can buy gifts. We can make meals. We know how to celebrate. We know how to grieve. But what happens when it's something like happened to us? Or divorce, or abuse, or mental illness, or inequity, or drug addiction, or a job loss, again, or sin that seems too bad, too hard, too uncomfortable. Do our tables hold space for the hurting and the broken? Is there a place of welcome for these? Now, if you'd like, please turn with me in your Bible or on your devices to Luke chapter 5. And we'll be reading verses 27 through 32. And the first few verses will probably sound familiar um, because Nikki so excellently spoke to us on those a few weeks ago. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and he left everything and followed Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and large crowds of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the, un the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Now, if you flip a couple of pages in your Bible, or however that works on the device, old school, sorry, you'll see another table story unfold. Um, this time, the scene is set at the house of a rabbi. We'll be looking in a moment at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now... I think it's really important at this time that I share a little bit about, thank you, I share a little bit about um, the culture of the time. A lot of ladies in our church have been really blessed with the opportunity to learn more about the Jewish culture through a Bible study we just did, which was so amazing. Um, so for a quick synopsis for today's particular lesson, Table fellowship was and is very important and serves as one of the highest forms um, of social affiliation. Um, the Jewish culture both then and now has three kind of primary cultural norms. We're just kind of really condensing it. Um, it is an honor-shame culture. It's a hospitality culture. And it's a communal we not me culture. Okay, so also in Jesus's time, the basic norms of hospitality provided by a host would be a kiss of welcome, um, washing of the guest's feet with water, olive oil maybe for the guest's hands, um, anointing the head of an honored guest with special oils. Um, and then there was this other norm uh, outcast, sinners, the poor, the unclean, they would sit away from the table behind the honored guests against the wall. 
and they were fed after the meal was served. So Jesus being invited to an older rabbi's house was kind of possibly an initiation. Let's see where he stands on his doctrine. Um, being given a seat at the table was a sign of status. You're in. Um, it's a sign of importance. At the table, you'd lean on your left arm. Would be hard for me. I'm left-handed. Um, and you would, so you would lean on your left arm and your feet would go behind you away from the table toward the wall. Because hospitality was and is such a huge part of the cultural norm, the pious would sometimes invite or allow others in as a sort of keeping up appearances obligation rather than an act of love. The honored guest feet ultimately pointed toward and kept in their place those who were just there for the sake of aesthetics. Now, Knowing this background, let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 6 verses 36 through Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50. When the Pharisees, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. I think what y'all know, that was a very expensive thing to bring. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She then wiped them with her hair, her crown of glory. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now I'm just gonna let us remember for a second that his feet had not been washed. FYI, she's still at his feet. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man is a prophet, surely he would know this is a sinful woman who's kissing his feet. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a lender. One owed him 500 denarius and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who'd been forgiven the bigger debt. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he did an about face. He turned. He's still talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As great a love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little 
loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this one table scene, Jesus breaks the norms. He basically tells off Simon the rabbi in his own home, at his own banquet, forgives the sinful woman, talks her away from the wall of shame and into a place of honor right next to him. I learned in this last Bible study, it's actually possible, now we don't know for sure, that this woman could have brought two jars. The alabaster jar of perfume, that's a definite. But in that time, there was a jar that the women would use that would catch their tears. Literally holding all their shame, hurt, and disappointment valuable. Every tear. What a beautiful scene. So it could be that from this tear jar, she poured her lifetime of pain at Jesus' feet. And whether she did it literally or figuratively, it doesn't matter. Jesus turns toward her, acknowledges her, and gives her a voice. He gives her hope. He elevates her and defends her. This woman, she walks away, leaving a footprint of honor rather than shame after laying everything at Jesus' feet and allowing him to redeem her at the table that was set to bring her shame. <laughs> what a loving Savior. So as I grew older, um, that table that had been a place of absence in my own life, it became one of abundance. My mom uh, remarried and brought, which brings its own struggles and stigmas, but it also brought a great sense of joy and normalcy back into our lives. I gained a sister immediately and another brother eventually, and we had many family dinners together, which was a priority in our home. It was a time to get to know one another, share with one another, and learn from one another. We also had the great joy and blessing of experiencing Sunday lunch at my great-grandparents' house every Sunday after church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. My Mama Ruth and Daddy Oscar, known to my whole town as Mama Ruth and Daddy Oscar, were by all American standards poor, okay? They never owned a home. Their car was extremely old. They did not have central heating or cooling. In fact, the wood-burning stove that sat in the middle of the living room would sometimes make you feel like your skin was going to melt off. They, <laughs> it was hot. They had two bedrooms, a tiny bathroom, and a tiny kitchen with a long table. What they did have, though, they had an abundance of love. They had a welcome mat on their heart and a door that swung wide open. These Sunday lunches consisted of all things fried, including chicken, mashed potatoes, macaroni, coleslaw, green beans, pinto beans, cornbread, rolls, and enough pies to make you drool and pop your buttons. Some of you right now are remembering these lunches. We, you've had them with your own families. If you haven't, we're going to recreate 
We're going to do the potluck fellowship. Let's just get ready for it. COVID is going away. All right. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, my daddy, Oscar, um, always had some great sayings at these lunches. And, and he would use the same quotes pretty much every Sunday. Um, one was, well, it's too bad. Nobody around here knows how to cook. And another one was, um, well, if you eat an early dinner, you might just make it. But my all-time favorite, the very favorite thing he would say was, I may not have any money, but I am the richest man on earth. And he was. He was. This table had laughter, tears, celebrations, surprises, times of grief times of joy, the food was good, but the fellowship was better, and you knew, never knew, who would be there from week to week. If you had a friend, you could invite them. They were welcome. If someone new came to church, invite them. They were welcome. If you had made contact with somebody that nobody knew, you could invite them. They were welcome. All were welcome at the table, and if they were lucky enough, after they had filled themselves full of food, they would be full of the music of my daddy Oscar playing I'll Fly Away, There Is Beyond the Azure Blue, on his harmonica on the front porch. <laughs> if only those tables could speak the stories it could tell. These are places of transformation and formation. Sharing table is one of the most uniquely human things we do. No other creature consumes food around a table. Tables are one of the most important places for human connection. We're often most fully alive sitting around a table, sharing a meal together. Now, mothers of young children or any children, or perhaps your husbands, I'm feeling you right now. Our tables are not always perfect, okay? In fact, they are often chaotic and sometimes downright out of control. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. All right. If nothing else, this is a time where there is a forced rhythm of connection. There is a forced rhythm that causes us to pause and reflect on both ourselves and others. Now, all these good, good things happening around the table. I want to ask you, do you remember, do you remember that time of being invited in? Guys, what a feeling, right? It was in my elementary school cafeteria when I knew there were a few friends who were with me no matter what. It was in, on the Navajo Reservation in Fort Defiance, Arizona, where we had come to feed the children the love of Jesus and were fed fresh fried bread right out of the oil. It was in my childhood home over countless pans of homemade lasagna that my mom fed to us before we went out to play another game of basketball or hide and seek in the backyard. In Ukraine, it was the little boy who ran through the rain to give me his yogurt. And he was a little boy from an orphanage and that was a treat. And he didn't know when or if he'd get another one. It was at 21 having 
temporarily paused my college experience so that I could volunteer at a church in Australia, finding a warm bed and a warm meal with an older couple who took a risk on a girl they did not know and welcomed me in. I still call them Grandma and Gramps, and their example to me and to our family has inspired us to welcome people into our own home and eat meals around our table together. In Papua New Guinea, it was a coconut cut fresh from a tree as we walked the day's trek into the village where we'd be staying. And once in the village, it was a dinner of cow cow and kumu, that is greens and a white sweet potato that was sacrificially given to us as a meal. In Rwanda, it was a church with one light bulb where the whole community came together and gave us a feast when we went there to take them Jesus and a goat. They're important. In Franklin, Tennessee, it's the life group led by Mike and Tanya Williams who first welcomed Tim and me into their lives all those many years ago and poured into us as a young couple through meals and fellowships at our own home. It's saying yes to the crazy idea of a before school Bible study, which we could have never imagined would result in 50 kids coming to our house before school. Okay, only God. It's a harmony group sitting under a tree in my backyard where we talk about being a bridge that unites people with Jesus. It's homemade pizza with some of your favorite people. It's pasta and bread before the youth group go and play basketball. It's a cup of coffee with a friend on your patio. Or one more tea party with your daughter. These are the quiet moments that may seem insignificant. The little moments around a table. Moments of formation and transformation, moments of welcoming in and making space. These are the moments Jesus somehow made time for, moments he knew could shape and form. And I'm convicted and I'm convinced that if Jesus could make time, then surely we have to try. Recently, I had some time of quiet and as I walked along, I was asking Jesus, come on, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you have for me? What do you want me to do? And I don't always get immediate answers. Um, I wish I did. But this time, I did. It was immediate. Um, as I looked down, I saw hearts in the sand. And I quickly realized that's where feet had stepped and left their impact. In my spirit, I immediately heard, leave a footprint of Jesus, love, wherever you go. Wherever you step, leave love behind. You know those times when you regret asking Jesus what he would have of you and exactly what you should do? Okay. I may or may not have started to try to negotiate immediately that it's really hard in certain situations and did he really mean always but he tested me right then on my quiet walk 
my time of reflection with him. Yeah. I heard pretty clearly, you ask, I answered, get to work. <laughs> so, how might this play out? How might this look in our everyday lives? It could be a plate of food with that, given to that Amazon driver who shows up at your house right at lunchtime. Inviting in that door-to-door -door salesman who comes to your house at dinner time and you feel annoyed, but he's hungry too. It could be getting to know your neighbors and sharing a meal and a conversation with them. It might be developing a relationship with that girl who checks you out every single time and finally getting the courage to invite her in. It might be striking up a conversation with that mom or dad at the park who looks like they're at their wits end. It could be invited to lunch, that coworker you just can't quite figure out. And it might be as simple as asking someone their name, giving them value as God's creation, and just seeing where that leads. So, it's worth noting and not really at all surprising to find Jesus showing up at tables. From fancy banquets to fireside fish fries, each meal, each moment with a meaning. At the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in both Old and New Testament, we find tables. The table of Passover, the table of reconciliation, the table of discipleship, the table of evangelism, the table of thanksgiving, the table of communion. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright captured something of this sentiment when he wrote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. <laughs> he gave them a meal. William Willimon says in his book, Sunday Dinner, the Lord's Supper in the Christian Life, today when people look at the church and ask, are you Christ's body or shall we look further? The only true test to which the church can refer is that of our Lord himself. We have to point them to our table, to that conglomeration of sick, hurting people where the nobodies are eaten like somebodies, with the outcast invited in and being filled with good things. If this isn't church, I don't know what is. Just stand, please.
we have a benediction that I can't see, so hang on. <laughs> Old eyes. Okay. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine Lord, grant that I may not so much to be, to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal.